Thanks for tuning in to this week's sermon from Oak Hill Church in Humboldt, Iowa. We pray that it helps you to know Christ, grow in Christ, and sow Christ wherever you are. For more information about who we are and what we're doing, go to oakhillhumble.org. Father, now we ask for your spirit to be with us as we look into your word together. We acknowledge that we do not come here as those who are perfected, uh, those who are um, performing for you, God, today, or trying to pretend. Uh, we come as, as needy sinners in need of a word from you, Jesus, and we come hungry, Father, for you to give that to us today. So open our hearts to you, humble us as we receive your word today. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you've got a Bible this morning, I invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible with you, the words will be up there on the screen in back of me, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. The title of my message today is How to Take Communion, How to Take Communion. I think most of us have, have grown up in churches where we took communion from perhaps even an early age. And I wonder for you if it was more of a ritual, something where you were just kind of going through the motions. And I wonder even when we serve communion today, when we pass out the elements and when they're passed out, I wonder if you're spacing out. You know, you're like, what do I think about during this time? It seems like everybody else is kind of doing something, thinking about something. What, what do I even think about during this time? Well, I want to tell you that the Lord's Supper is, is loaded with meaning. It is loaded with meaning. And so with that in mind, we're going to seek to answer three simple questions today about communion. And here they are. Number one, what is communion? What is communion? Now, I don't want to make any assumptions here today. We're coming from a variety of different church backgrounds. In fact, I've been teaching the Starting Point uh, Newcomers class. Found out that in a group of about 15, 16 people, nine different church backgrounds are represented. So I would think in a room this size, we're coming from many different church backgrounds. So don't want to assume that we understand what communion really is. Number two, why do we celebrate communion? So what are the reasons why? What's the big purpose behind why we do this? Why do we celebrate communion? And then number three, how should we then take communion? How should we take communion? And I'm not so concerned here about the actual method or the actions. I'm more concerned about, Scripture is more concerned about our heart's attitude as we approach the Lord's table. And so... The what, the why, and the how of communion. But first, let's begin with the context here in the city of Corinth. And so chapter 11, I'm going to read verses 17 to 22. This is the word of God. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? 
Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. So kind of a strange context, something that's difficult for us to relate to, but there's evidence that early Christians actually uh, linked together a shared meal uh, with the Lord's Supper. And so we see here in the city of Corinth, these Christians are coming together regularly to participate in a shared meal and communion as well as corporate worship together. So think of it kind of like a first century potluck dinner. They shared a meal together, and in the context, they shared communion with one another. Now here was the problem. They were supposed to be coming together as as a unified body of believers, and yet within this body of believers, there were those who were more well-off, and there were those who were a little more poor. And they were to come together and share food with one another in this, in this context of this meal. And yet the rich here were being selfish. They weren't waiting on the poor. It was almost as if they were forming little cliques within their church family. And they were eating without the poor there. They were actually gorging themselves, even getting drunk. Can you imagine? Before they would take the Lord's Supper. And so Paul is addressing this and he's saying in verse 20, this is not the Lord's Supper. Look at verse 20 and 21. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. So here we see what communion is not. It is not this selfish kind of attitude we come where we're actually divided and not unified as the family of God. And so Paul moves from here to describe what communion really is. He's reminding them that communion is not about you. It's about Jesus. And you've forgotten Jesus' selfless love for you on the cross. That's what communion is all about. And so let's move to that first question then. What is communion? Look at verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so Jesus had passed down these words to his original disciples when he was gathered with them for that last supper. And these disciples, perhaps it was Peter, uh, Pass this on to Paul, who is now passing it on to the Corinthians. So this is the first example we see of a church, a New Testament church, practicing uh, the Lord's Supper communion together. Now, notice these words where Jesus says in verse 24, This is my body, which is given for you. So many different interpretations throughout the history of the church when it comes to how do we interpret those words. And as I said before, we're coming from perhaps different church backgrounds here in this room, and so as we look at some different views of communion together, I want us to, number one, respect other traditions, all right? This is not an opportunity for us to uh, have kind of a negative attitude to one denomination over another. It's just that we would address these things honestly. How does, how does this uh, view uh, affect then uh, the way we take communion? And so let's take a look at these, asking ourselves the question, what does scripture say 
in how we ought to take communion. What does Scripture say when it comes to what communion really is? And so here is the first view. It's the Catholic view of transubstantiation. Can you say transubstantiation? <laughs> That's your $2 theological word of the day. You did a good job with that. So transubstantiation literally means a changing of substance, a change of substance. This is the official Roman Catholic teaching when it comes to communion. So in the Mass, the bread and the wine is consecrated by the priest, wherein it becomes then the actual body and blood of Jesus Christ. He is himself physically in these elements, is what the Catholic view says. Now, taking it right from the catechism of the Catholic Church, they also believe then that to receive communion is to receive Christ. And you can make that uh, you know, relationship if you see this as the actual body and blood of Jesus being transformed there in that moment, that you're actually receiving Jesus as you're receiving communion. They take it even a step further here in, as they say, in here, the catechism, that taking communion increases one's union with the Lord and forgives one's sins. Now, that's, that's the core of the problem with this view, that taking communion increases one's union with the Lord and actually can forgive you of your sins. This is why many are so scared to miss Mass. Because they may be missing out on saving grace and forgiveness of their sins that can be infused to them as they take in the bread and the wine, believing that it's actually Christ himself they're taking in and his forgiveness for their sins. So I'm going to argue this view is not in keeping with Scripture and can lead us down a path away from what communion really is all about. It's not about receiving this infused grace by taking in something that we do. It's by celebrating the grace of God already done for us in Jesus. So that's, that's one view. The second view is the Lutheran view called consubstantiation, consubstantiation. And I want to just say this right away, that I grew up in the Lutheran church, and so um, I grew up with this perspective However, I don't understand it at all. I, I don't. I, I, I wanted to say that from the beginning. It's really difficult for me to understand what uh, Luther meant by this, but here is, here is how he worded it. He believed that Christ is in, with, and under the elements. So he refuted the Catholic teaching that Christ is not actually in the elements, but he's somehow present alongside the bread and the wine when we participate in communion. He's physically present there with us. It's like water with a sponge. Again, I, I have a hard time understanding exactly what he meant by those words, but that's another view of what communion is. Thirdly, this is the Protestant Reformed view of symbolism and spiritual presence. I could have broken those up into two, but I decided just to kind of lump them together as one. Most Protestants, most of those in the Reformed tradition would agree to both of these. So this view says that when we, when we receive the bread and we receive the juice or the wine, it represents the body and blood of Jesus. So this is my body 
would be like Jesus saying, this represents my body that's going to the cross to die for you. This represents the new covenant that I'm going to bring about through my blood. So it's symbolic. It's symbolism. Along with that, there are those who believe, and I'm inclined to believe the same, that in the Lord's Supper, as we participate together in the Lord's Supper, that Christ himself, not his physical presence, but his Holy Spirit, his presence is with us. The reason why I'm inclined to say that is the scriptures teach that he's always with us wherever we go, right? And perhaps in communion, we, we sense his strengthening grace as we remember what Christ did for us on the cross. And so the main thing I want you to grapple with here is this. As you think about what communion is, it is not to earn your salvation. There's nothing that we are doing in this uh, Lord's Supper as we take it together to earn our salvation. No, it's to celebrate our salvation. There's a big difference. We're, we're celebrating our salvation. What Christ has done already for us, the work is finished. And so that is what communion is all about. Secondly then, why? Why then do we celebrate communion? What are the big reasons behind why we do this? And I want to suggest four reasons. Actually, there are four directions. We can look in four directions. Others have pointed this out as well. And so here they are. Number one, why do we celebrate communion? Number one, to look back in remembrance, to look back in remembrance, look back at verses 24 and 25 again, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So foundationally, the reason why we take communion, the reason why we participate in the Lord's Supper is to look back, to look back in remembrance. So the, the bread and the juice are like signs pointing to a greater reality, pointing to the actual uh, body and blood of Jesus there at Calvary. We look back at an historical event in history. Jesus really did die on a cross for us over 2,000 years ago. And so as we think about the bread, we think about his body, as he came to us in human flesh, he condescended to us and suffered and died on the cross for us. As we think about his, his blood, which cleanses us from a guilty conscience and gives us access to the Father, we, we think about how these are our signposts that, that point us to greater realities. As we contemplate the cross, I want you to think about how the gospel really is this simple. Five words, Jesus died in my place. Jesus died in my place. That is what we ought to be remembering as we take the Lord's Supper. What are you to think about as those elements are being passed out to you? That's one big thing. Look back in remembrance. Jesus died in my place. This is all over the scriptures. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 1 Peter 3.18, Christ suffered once for all the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to 
God. Isaiah 53, 5, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. And so all of these verses in Scripture point us to that one big truth, Jesus died in my place. And so, number one, why do we celebrate communion? We look back. We look back in remembrance. Secondly, we look up. We look up in thankfulness. We look up in thankfulness. Now, I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, uh, I, uh, I was not thinking much about Jesus when communion was being taken. I was looking, my eyes were, were drawn to the front where the pastor was wearing this long rope <clears throat> and with this altar right, that kind of separated everybody else from coming near. And, and as we co- come to the front, we would, we would kneel before this uh, ornately you know, adorned altar. And, and all those kind of things kind of made my eyes drawn to what was happening here on stage and not so much about the person who made this all possible. But as we think about communion, it is about looking up in thankfulness to our Savior. The word in the Greek, Eucharist means to give thanks, to give thanks. We give thanks to Jesus for what he has done for us on the cross and how he is now interceding for us at the right hand of God. In Romans 8, uh, verse 34, it says, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. He is our high priest who has gone before us, who is now seated at the right hand of God, and he's always, always, always pleading on your behalf and interceding for you. And so we look up to him as we take communion. In thankfulness, you finished the work, Jesus, and I'm forgiven. So we look back in remembrance. Number two, we look up in thankfulness. Number three, we look around. We look around with thoughtfulness, with thoughtfulness. In the context of these verses here, these 18 verses about the Lord's Supper, five times this verb is mentioned to come together. The church was coming together as one assembly, as a body of believers. They were in fellowship with one another. They were participating together in the Lord's Supper. This was a family It was united with one another. In 1 Corinthians 10, 17, Paul writes this. He says, because there is one loaf or one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. He's describing our unity as a a family as we participate together in this Lord's Supper. We're remembering we are one, united in Christ. A few years ago, a friend, pastor friend of mine, uh, told me the story. I've, I've shared it before. He uh, got to visit another church, and they were they were practicing communion that day, and uh, they were doing it in a different way uh, through intinction. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that. It's when you come to the front, and there's this loaf of bread that the pastor tears off, and so you're to take a little piece of bread, and then there's this chalice. You're to dip it in the bread, and then to to eat that, and then to move on. Well, my friend was, uh, was kind of spacing out, and so he wasn't really paying attention to what was going on up front, so he was getting in line to come to the front. He gets to the front, uh, there's the pastor, and so he takes the piece of bread and pops it in his mouth, 
and then sees the chalice, he takes it from the pastor and drinks a gulp himself and then puts it back and, and walks back uh, to his chair. Not having realized he did it all wrong until his wife was like, what are you doing? And so his face starts turning red. Needless to say, we think, well, I don't know if I'd want to practice communion that way, you know, in our Purell-dominated culture that we live in today. I'm not sure if I want to have, you know, this common cup, and, and we understand that. And by the way, we're not doing that today, so if you're kind of worried out there, um, you're a little sick or you don't want to spread germs or get germs, we're not doing that. But there is something about this idea of unity, and I think a lot of cultures still today practice communion in this way. There's, there's one cup, and they all share it together. There's one loaf of bread, and it's a, it's a reminder of we're one family here united in Jesus, and I care about your faith. And I love you, and we're unified in this together. And so we look back in remembrance, we look up in thankfulness, we, we look around in thoughtfulness, and lastly, lastly, we look forward. We look forward with eagerness. We look forward with eagerness. Look at verse 26. Paul says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I think he's borrowing words from Luke's gospel in Luke 22, verse 18. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes, Jesus says. And so all this is pointing forward. When we take communion together, it's a, it's a foretaste of heaven. It's a, it's a preview of, of what's coming when Christ returns. And we can enjoy this marriage supper of the Lamb. He's coming back. And until that day, we proclaim the Lord's death in communion until he comes. We proclaim the Lord's death. So it's not just this remembrance. It's, it's this proclamation of the gospel. Vis, visibly through this supper, we're showing what Christ has done for us until he returns. And so why do we celebrate communion? We look back in remembrance, we look up in thankfulness, we look around in thoughtfulness, and we look forward with eagerness. Which brings us to our last question, how then should we take communion? How? How should we do this? Look at verses 27 to 29. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. There's a seriousness that comes with participating in the Lord's Supper, a serious reflection. Paul says we must examine ourselves. Or if we want to use the imagery of looking, we must look in now. We must look in now. And notice the responsibility is on your shoulders. Not to participate in communion in this casual, cavalier kind of attitude, but to be honest and begin asking yourself some questions. The first one is simply this, am I a Christian? Am I a Christian? In 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5, Paul says this, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. 
Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? Examine yourself. Are you really who you say you are? Are you believing in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Or are you just believing the Iowa gospel, which says, I'm a good person. I've always gone to church. I believe in God. So therefore, I'm a Christian. It has nothing to do with Christ's finished work for you on the cross. Nothing to do with your sin. Nothing to do with Christ's saving work. And you're merely assuming that I've always grown up in this. I've always taken this communion every Sunday. And I'm a Christian just because of what I've done or not done. We need to examine ourselves to see, are we really believing in Jesus? Do you have affections for Jesus this morning? Do you love him? Do you hunger after him? Are you depending on him alone for the forgiveness of your sins? Or are you smuggling in your righteous deeds, your good works to achieve your salvation? Just a quick word to you who are parents with children. Be cautious about moving too quickly when giving your kids the opportunity to take communion. Some of us have grown up in environments where this was kind of a rite of passage when they got to be a certain age. Well, yeah, then you guys can take communion. And and never really seriously considering where does my child stand with Jesus Christ? And it's not just a yes and no. Hey, do do you believe in Jesus? Oh, yeah. Okay, then you participate in communion. This is a a reflection upon the state of their salvation. And listen, I even need help with that. As your pastor, I have four kids, and I don't want to assume I know their heart, just my perspective. So even with my own children, I've had pastors and elders, when I think they're beginning to ask questions, they've taken this class. And by the way, just a little promotion for our baptism class coming up. It's, it's not just for adults. It's for students. It's for kids of all ages. March 1st, we're going to have this class, 945. My kids have gone through that. And then elders and pastors are asking them questions to discern, are, are you following Jesus? We must be following Jesus in order to participate in the Lord's Supper And even to be able to examine yourself says that you're a believer in Jesus. Because here's what's happening. It's not only asking the question, am I a Christian? The second question is, am I holding on to sin? Am I holding on to sin? In Psalm 139, verse 23, David prays, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. Shine your flashlight, Jesus, onto my soul. He knows the seriousness of his sin. He's doing a heart check, isn't he? So communion is a time for us to do a heart check. Are we holding on to sin? Or are we bringing it into the light? Are we cherishing a sin? In Psalm 66, verse 18, it says, If I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Some of us here in this room, we've got to be honest even now, Are we holding on to a sin? Are we cherishing the sin? Are we playing with it? I heard this story a while back, crazy story, about a man 
I think he's from Czechoslovakia, somehow he started raising a male lion, illegally, unauthorized, just kind of helped to train this lion, groom the lion, train it to do different things, it's kind of like in his backyard, so to speak. When it got to be nine years old, one day the lion turned on him and ripped him to shreds, killed him. And you think, didn't he see it coming? It's a lion. What's the purpose of a lion? To kill stuff, right? And here it is. This man was just kind of playing with the lion, training the lion, thinking, I got control over the lion, and the lion turned on him. Some of you are doing that with your sin today. You're playing with it. You think you can control it. You can't control it. You need to confess it. Come to the light of Jesus and find cleansing for your sin. One more question we need to be answering or asking ourselves as we move towards communion. Am I a Christian? Am I holding on to sin? Thirdly, do I need reconciliation? Do I need reconciliation? In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says these words, the Sermon on the Mount. He says, so if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Are you nursing a grudge with someone here? In the family of God, are you, are you bitter? Are you, are you acting in anger toward another believer? You may need to pause as the elements go by, and first reconcile. Go to your brother or sister in Christ and make amends and reconcile. Move toward peace. I don't have this verse up there, but in verse 29, Paul says, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. He may be referring to the body of, of Christ um, and the elements, but I think he may also be referring to the, the body, uh, the, the family of God. The Corinthians weren't discerning how they were acting towards other believers. They were being selfish. And Paul is saying, you've got to discern. You've got to look at how you're treating others. In other words, to sum up all these questions, don't take the Lord's Supper lightly, is what Paul's saying. Don't take the Lord's Supper lightly. Serious, humble reflection needs to happen in our hearts before we take of communion. Notice the consequences of what can happen when we don't. Look at verse 30. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. Verse 32, but when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Now, surely he's not saying every time you are sick or someone dies, it's in response to your sin. However, it might be. In order to discipline you and to spare you from final judgment is what Paul says here. Pretty weighty stuff. We've got to take this in. So how? How should we take communion? We take it humbly. Seriously, we're examining ourselves before the Lord. Am I a Christian? 
Am I holding on to sin? Do I need reconciliation? And I wonder if, if you're listening here today, I wonder if this question then pops up into your mind. Well, is anyone worthy then to take this? I mean, what you've said seems like we've got to pursue perfection. Is anyone even worthy then to come to the table, to participate in communion together? Is, is, anyone, is anyone worthy? And the answer is no one is worthy except for one. In Revelation chapter 5, John writes this, And then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel, can you imagine, proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. No one was found worthy to open the scroll of redemptive history. No one could do it. There's no one. He looked around, and John began to weep. And then, look at what happens next. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Well, who's that? That's Jesus Christ, our conquering lion and our lamb who was slain on the cross. He has conquered. He has finished the work. As it says in John 19, verse 30, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. What has been finished? The work needed to save you, to take the punishment that we deserve. He took it all away from you. It's been finished. This is a once and for all sacrifice it's been accomplished for you, and the finished work of Jesus then frees us to come to the table. We are worthy because Christ is worthy. By his blood, we are made worthy to come into his presence. In Hebrews 10, 19 to 22, it says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us then draw near, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. So we're to come because of the blood of Jesus. We're to, we're to come. We're, we're made worthy because of the blood to enter into his presence and to come and participate together in communion. One more verse, John, the same man who wrote the book of Revelation, who saw this vision of Christ exalted, said these tender words in 1 John 2, verses 1 to 2, my little children, by the way, John's about 90 years old when he's writing this, can you imagine? Grandpa John saying to us, I'm writing these things to you, little children, so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He's the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So very tenderly, I think, full of grace, John writes these words and reminds us, we have been given an advocate with the Father who is always pleading our case. 
He's not saying, well, you need to be a little bit more lenient with Doug. Just have a little bit more patience with him. No, what he's saying is, you can't hold his sin anymore against him. Because you've taken it. Christ has taken it for us on the cross. And so we can come. We can come to the table because Christ has finished the work for us. We are free to come. So we come solemnly, seriously. Yes, we do. Humbly we come, but we also come joyfully. We can come joyfully today. Joyfully because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus, as we reflect now and get ready to participate in communion together. I pray that there would be a heart check. We would examine ourselves. I would examine myself. We would ask ourselves some serious questions, and we would be humbled to know that you receive sinners. If we feel unworthy and guilty today, we know that you receive us because Christ is the worthy one. He is the one who has finished the work for us. So we come not trying to perform. We come humbly bowing before you, Jesus, and joyfully receiving these elements as we remember what you've done for us at the cross. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.